Hello, welcome to Reflections on the Scriptures. My name is Murray Shanks. I'm the pastor of Foster Baptist Church on the mid-north coast of New South Wales and Australia. We're working through the book of Acts together. If you're with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that the early church has just been scattered from Jerusalem because of a great wave of persecution which broke out following the arrest, trial and eventual execution of a man by the name of Stephen. So let's read on from Acts 8, verse 4. It says, But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. You may remember I mentioned last week that it's, uh, it's very significant that the believers preached the gospel, the good news about Jesus wherever they went. It wasn't just the apostles, it wasn't just the leaders, but rather everyone preached about Jesus wherever they went. The way they lived their lives became a proclamation of the gospel. Luke, the writer of Acts, then moves to tell us the story of one of these people who fled persecution in Jerusalem. He tells us the story of Philip. Verse 5 says, Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Now, Samaria is an unusual place for a Jew to go. As I've I've mentioned to you uh, a couple of times over the last few months, in the first century, many Jews would have travelled out of their way to avoid going through the region of Samaria. In the Talmud, the religious writings of the rabbis, the region of Samaria was not even considered part of the Holy Land. So it's, it's a big deal that these very first Christians went there and preached the good news about Jesus. It's very significant because it shows a change of heart in these early believers. As the Holy Spirit reoriented their priorities and their values, suddenly they thought differently about these people living in Samaria. No longer were these people beneath contempt. Now they were valued and loved. People who needed to hear the good news about the kingdom of God. People who needed to know Jesus. One can imagine that when Philip announced to his friends and family that he was going to flee to Samaria, they may, they may well have replied, <laughs> you're not serious. I mean, why would you go to those dogs? It's just not right. The good news about Jesus can't be for them. But now there's been a change of heart. So Philip went and told the people there about Jesus. Verse 6 says, Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralysed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So Philip went and there was great interest in what he had to say. Now remember, these Samaritans weren't unaware of the teachings of the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the scriptures, they worshipped Yahweh and they awaited the Messiah. When Israel returned from exile in Babylon around 600 years earlier, the king of Babylon sent with them a whole lot of other people who were Gentiles, that is non-Jews. Now these people were settled in this region, the region of Samaria, and as people always do, they intermarried with the local Jewish population. In a sense, they became Jewish in their religious practice, yet because of their interracial bloodlines, they were never completely accepted by the real Jews who worshipped in Jerusalem. And of course, this conflict, this tension continued right up until the time of Christ. In fact, I was amazed to read recently that there are still about seven to 800 people who identify as Samaritans, 751 by their own tally. They live together and worship according to the ancient rites of their forebears. So do you get the picture? There's this tension between the Jews and these so-called half-breeds, the Samaritans. Yet when Philip went to them with the gospel, 
they responded really well. They showed great interest. They were eager to hear his message and to see the miraculous signs he performed amongst them. And in addition to this, it also seems that there were many demon-possessed people living among them as well. Verse 9 says, A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be somebody great. Everyone, from the least to the greatest, often spoke of him as the Great One, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. So it would seem this Simon did indeed possess some kind of supernatural power. Of course, he may well have been nothing more than a trickster, deceiving the people with sleight-of-hand gimmicks, but I think not. The text says, For many years he amazed the people, and everyone, from the least to the greatest, spoke of him as the Great One, the power of God. So I can't help thinking that he probably did perform a type of miracles. However, his, his power came... Well, clearly came not from God, but rather from the enemy, the devil. This Simon was demon-possessed, as were many of those who lived around about him. Remember, verse 7 says, many evil spirits were cast out. So he's starting to see the complexity of what is happening here. Philip goes to Samaria, a most unlikely destination to, to preach the gospel. Despite being so close to Jerusalem, it's populated by people considered to be a mongrel race, apparently unworthy of God's grace. But Philip goes anyway. He finds there a heavily demonised group of people who one would expect were living very sin-filled lives as a result of their demon oppression, yet there are those among them who know the Scriptures and are awaiting the Messiah. And on top of all of that, there's this local dude who for years has been working some type of miracle it would seem in the power of Satan. Do you see what I mean? There's a lot happening. Let's read on, verse 12. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptised. Then Simon himself believed and was baptised. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. Wow, I mean, they hear the gospel... And they respond. These so-called Gentile dogs hear the good news and they make a decision to become Christ followers. It says many men and women believed and were baptised, including, believe it or not, this demon-possessed miracle worker named Simon. Philip must have been overjoyed with the fruit of his labours. He must have wanted to share the news of his God-given success with the apostles back in Jerusalem, maybe with those who doubted the validity of his mission amongst them. We don't know. We, we do know that when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there to check it out, to see if what they were hearing was correct. Verse 14 says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers and they received the Holy Spirit. If much of this is new to you, those first, those few words that are there, they they may not appear very significant. I mean, that, that's okay. I imagine you're trying to get all of this to fit together somehow. But if, on the other hand, you've been thinking about all of this, you know, the Bible, 
God, salvation, theology for some time. Those words may fill you with a whole heap of confusion. If you've been attending church for any period of time, especially if you've been a member of, a, say, a Bible study group or that you simply have read the scriptures and thought deeply about them, if that is you, you will probably know that this passage has caused a great deal of division and angst within the church for a very long time. The issue revolves around what has become known as the second blessing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are very sincere brothers and sisters in Christ who see this as a key verse in teaching that salvation and living in the fullness of God's kingdom is a two-step process. They teach that one needs to firstly accept Christ and then secondly, one needs to be baptised in the Holy Spirit. The proof then that this has happened is that the believer receives the gift of tongues and they speak in tongues to confirm that they are in fact baptised in the Holy Spirit. They cite this passage saying the Samaritans believed in Jesus. They were baptised in his name, yet they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Their conversion, it has been suggested, was not complete until they had received this second blessing. Do you see how this stands in contrast to the understanding that salvation, that is, entering into right relationship with God, comes through turning from our sins and accepting that only Jesus can deal with those sins and that in an instant, as we confess our sins and put our trust in Jesus alone to deal with those sins, we are changed. We are given the righteousness of Jesus. And with that comes the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives in us from then on, forever, continuing day by day to make us like Jesus. A one-step, once-for-all event that, if genuine, can never be lost or stolen. Do you see how that stands in direct contrast with this notion that salvation is a two-step process? Do you see how distressing it may be for someone who believes they are saved and in right relationship with God to be told that they're not quite a fully-fledged Christian yet? And do you see how distressing it would be for somebody to then ask God for this so-called second blessing? only to find that they don't then start speaking in tongues. Now, I have to tell you honestly, there was a period in my life when I believed in this second blessing. And for all of those reasons, I found it very unsettling. But I no longer believe this to be the case. The problem was I didn't seem to have the gift of tongues. I wanted this second blessing. I felt as though I had done everything required to get it. And yet it didn't all fall into place for me as, as I believed it should. Now, I also should make very clear to you in saying that, that I do believe in the gift of tongues. And, well, these days I often pray in tongues. And if you ask me if I believe it is of God, I would say absolutely without question. Now, that is not to say that I believe that every Christian is given this gift or that in any way it is a measure of maturity or growth in Christ. My wife, Louise, as it turns out, doesn't seem to have this gift, but she's very open to it if God was to bless her with it, and she certainly believes in the gift of tongues. And whilst I pray in tongues these days, there was a period of my life of about 15 years, to be exact, where I asked the Lord for this gift, but in his wisdom, he withheld it from me. So as you can see, this passage is one where we want to work very hard to seek to understand what God is saying to us through this part of his word. What is happening here? For these first believers outside of Jerusalem in the, the weeks following that 
very first major outbreak of persecution. Is their experience one which we should see as normative for us? Does this set for us a pattern of conversion which we should seek to follow? Should this story set the rule? Or should Philip's experience with these very first Samaritan believers be seen as an exception to the rule? That God was actually doing something else here. Whenever we seek to understand these type of issues, it's very important that we don't take one passage of Scripture and isolate it from the rest of Scripture. We need the whole counsel of God before us. And this is what I have sought to do as I've worked through these questions anew in preparation for our time together today. So, so let's break down exactly what happened in this instant. Verse 14 says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. So, so Philip went, preached the gospel, a whole heap of people responded, and he baptised them in the name of Jesus. A message was sent to the apostles in Jerusalem about what had happened. Remember, Jerusalem is just 56 kilometres away, so not that far. Probably a couple of days, maybe a week, to get the message there and for Peter and John to return to Samaria. Verse 14, sorry, verse 15 says, As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. They didn't put them through a course. They didn't interview them for membership. It says, as soon as they arrived, they prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. Can you see the problem? Can you see how this raises questions? When these people responded to Philip's preaching, were they truly saved? That is the question. Were their sins forgiven? Did they truly enter into the fullness of kingdom life? Did they truly receive eternal life in that moment of conversion? If so, why had they not received the Holy Spirit in that moment? I mean, does not Paul many years later teach the Romans that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, he does not belong to Christ? You cannot be saved without the Spirit. That's what it says. Romans 8, 9, remember, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And in the book of Jude, we read that unbelievers are devoid of the Spirit. That's strong language, is it not? So clearly, we can say that true conversion involves receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you are not truly saved. Paul also wrote to the Ephesians about the oneness of entry into the kingdom of God. He says in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 verse 4, For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is a gift given to all believers without exception. No conditions are attached to the gift of the Spirit except faith in Christ. And when he's given, it is forever. The believer, the one receiving this most amazing of gifts, is changed forever, never to be the same again. Jesus said these profound words. Have a, have a careful look at this. This is John 7, verse 37. He said, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. 
Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scripture declares, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. So from these couple of passages, and and there are a number of others which we don't have time to look at today, we can be very clear about the fact that a person is baptised in the Holy Spirit the moment they put their faith in Christ, regardless of anything else. So what is happening here for these Samaritan believers And should we consider their experience as somehow being a template for our own? I think not. I think that behind the narrative, we see this very important turning point for the early church. They are on the journey of taking the gospel to the nations, aren't they? That's what the persecution has driven them to do. The comfortable days in Jerusalem are over. The Holy Spirit is fulfilling in them Jesus' command to go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. This is part of that journey. And I think God, in his wisdom, stalled the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on these believers to make it blatantly clear to the apostles, who you remember remained in Jerusalem, that God's kingdom really is now available for all, Jews and Gentiles alike. You see, I think it's important for us to remember that only a matter of months before, Peter and John were travelling with the other disciples through Samaria with the Lord Jesus himself, and they experienced some difficulty with the Samaritans. Let's have a look at Luke 9, verse 51. It says, As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messages ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. So they're in Samaria, and they're travelling to Jerusalem. It's, you know, it's Jesus' last time. He's coming down there. He knows what's coming. He sends the disciples off to spend some, some kind of time with their families, have a little bit of rest and wreck, and then he gathers them together, and they're making their way down to Jerusalem, and he sends ahead of them some messengers to, to try to prepare somewhere for them to, to, to stay in the Samaritan village. But the, it says, verse 53 says, But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. You see, they thought that he should be worshipping on the mountain in Samaria, not in Jerusalem. Do you see the tension here between the Jews and the Samaritans, which I mentioned earlier? And verse 54 says, When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, so they went on to another village. I can see Jesus turning to them and saying, What? What? I can't help feeling that the Lord Jesus may have withheld the Spirit from these very first converts in Samaria to make the point very clearly to his apostles, to James and John. Yes, the very same James and John who wanted to nuke the Samaritans only a few months earlier. I don't think the significance of this would have been lost on them. The good news really is for everyone, even the Samaritans. So the apostles came to lay hands on these believers. They laid hands on them and they saw for themselves the Holy Spirit coming upon them in power. Now, we aren't told what happened, 
But it was out without question. It was obvious. I don't know whether they all had little flames sitting on top of their head or or what. We just don't. We just don't know. But it was obvious. The good news really is for everyone, even the Samaritans. It's important to note that following this event, ordinary. Everyday believers are recorded laying hands on people and praying for them with great effect. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus. This is the story of how the guy who was spearheading the persecution of the early church is confronted by Jesus himself. And he's turned 180 degrees in the opposite direction and becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, it's interesting to note that when Paul has been blinded during his dramatic encounter with Jesus and he is praying in the home of Judas on Straight Street. It's an everyday unknown believer or disciple named Ananias who God commands to go to Paul to lay hands on him and pray that his sight would be restored and that he would receive the Holy Spirit. Do you see how quickly things changed for the early church? In chapter 8, the apostles have to travel to Samaria to lay hands on the Samaritans. Yet by chapter 9, the very next chapter, it's clear that God is now using anyone he chooses to work in his power. This man, Ananias, goes to find Paul praying to God amidst his blindness. He prays that, that he would regain his sight and that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. All of this happens and then Paul is baptised and he begins his amazing years of ministry that would eventually lead to the gospel being taken to the very ends of the known world. But sandwiched between these two events, between chapter 8 and 9, is this little story about this demon-possessed miracle worker by the name of Simon who believed Philip's message and was baptised in the name of Jesus. Let's have a, a quick look at Simon and then we'll finish you know, what we're doing here. This is verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this. Your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you're full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you said won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem. And they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. Simon didn't repent. Simon didn't pray to the Lord, even though this is what Peter and that's what that's what Peter and John suggested that he do. Instead, Simon asks them to pray to the Lord for him. And Luke tells us no more about him. Instead, Luke chooses to tell us about how Peter and John stopped in many Samaritan villages to preach the good news about Jesus. Clearly, they had learned their lesson. The good news really is for everyone, even the Samaritans. But what can we learn from the experience of Simon, Simon the sorcerer? You see, God chose to include his story in the Bible for a reason. I guess the danger is that because Jesus makes the kingdom of God so available to us, everything which needs to be done has already been done for us. Christ's atoning work on the cross is all that is needed to wash away every mark of sin from our lives. And his sacrifice, 
on our behalf is so adequate that it changes our standing before God eternally. I guess because of all of that, we can fall in the trap of somehow thinking that we can pull a swifty on Almighty God, that somehow we can trick him into thinking we are genuinely repentant when really really we're seeking our own agenda, that somehow we might con our way into his kingdom because Jesus really can't be all that smart. When Peter and John confronted Simon about his sinful motives, I want you to notice he didn't repent. He didn't humbly fall before God and beg his forgiveness. Instead, he tried to get around that by asking that Peter and John, men who were obviously mates with Jesus, that they might you know, put in a good word for him, that they might pull some strings. I mean, my goodness, who does he think he is dealing with here? This is almighty God, creator of the universe. But you know what? We can do the same thing. Do you really think that you can pull a swifty on almighty God? Do you really think that he doesn't see your real motives? Do you really think that he doesn't see your heart? Do you really think that he doesn't see what is really going on between you and him? Do you really think he doesn't see the truth about you and about me? I think there is one lesson we can learn. If there's one lesson that we can learn from the story of these Samaritan believers, and particularly the story of Simon the sorcerer, it is that you don't mess with God. Don't mess with God. He sees through all the pretense. He sees to the very core of your heart and my heart. He sees whether there is integrity in our relationship with him or not. I have no doubt he saw the lingering racial prejudice in the hearts of the apostles as well. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that they wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village. But now, in love, Jesus sends them right into the heart of their prejudice to confront their sinful attitudes and to give them an opportunity to repent. We don't hear about it, but I have no doubt that there would have been some confession of sin on behalf of Peter and John as they made that journey through Samaria, preaching the good news. So what should we do? The text tells us what to do in verse 22. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. This morning, if the word of God has confronted you about the integrity of your relationship with him. My challenge to you is simple. Wake up. Wake up and rethink just who it is you're dealing with here. This is Jesus. This is the one through whom all things were made. The one for whom all things were made. The one who sees all. The one who knows all. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. May the Lord bless you today.